Hey guys, it's Kim from Not Your Normal Horror Podcast. I'm here to tell you about the Anchor app, which is what I use to produce my podcast. It could not be any simpler. Coming from somebody who never had anything to do with podcasts before, this app does everything for you. Um, the most important part, it's free. doesn't cost a dime and you can make content to your heart's desire. Any amount of podcast you want to make, there's no limit. You do it and that's done. Uh, there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. I use my phone because I'm brand new to this and don't have podcasting equipment yet, but eventually I will and I will probably still use my phone because the Anchor app is just that easy. Uh, they will also distribute your podcast for you. It can be heard on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Basically, anywhere podcasts are available, Anchor will distribute it for you. Nothing for you to do except for sit back and, and watch it grow. Watch your listeners grow. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, which is pretty cool. Um, I just started this as a hobby and now I can make money from it. It's basically just everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Um, you don't have to go here, there, all over the place to get your podcast out. You record it, you edit it, you submit it, and it's out into the world for everyone to hear. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started and start your own podcast. It couldn't be simpler. Again, that's the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. back to another edition of not your normal horror yes who's back it's me kim i'm back she's back and someone else is back who's that it's you me it's jay he's back too what's up everybody hey guys so <coughs> it's almost christmas it is four days away can you believe like it's almost the end of 2021 already yep, i can that's I sure can. That's wild. Seems like it went by quick. No, I don't think so. A lot quicker than 2020. Yeah. Yep. Fuck 2020. 2021, kind of. But yeah. But it's better. Better than 2020 was. So anyways, we're going to talk about some more unsolved mysteries. Ooh. I love them. So do I. I so, find them very interesting and intriguing. I have, I want to say six. 114. <laughs> six, yes, yeah, six to talk about tonight. Um, So I think we should just dive right in because they're pretty long. Sure, yeah, it's a lot of pages but, for six. You know, just stop me when you want to talk about something I've said, okay? Because you know me, I'll just keep going. 
And I really oh. appreciate the breaks because then it helps Does it my throat. Let you get so. your drinks of water. Yep. You Wet your talk, whistle. Yes. If you talk, <laughs> then I can, I can take a drink of water and well, rest go my ahead. throat. Let's see if you have anything for me to talk about. I should hope so. Our first case is Paula Jean Weldon. The nature of disappearance and the frequency of them occurring in a place makes people wonder if they really are just the work of nature. In addition, it makes one wonder if foul play is involved. One such set of disappearances have been those that occurred in Vermont in an area known as the Bennington Triangle, infamously dubbed after the Bermuda Triangle, obviously. For decades, dozens of people have gone missing in this area, sensationalized as a hotspot of paranormal and supernatural energy. Stories of Bigfoot, UFOs, and serial killers are common in this area surrounded by Glastonbury Mountain. One such case that was so mysterious that it even inspired a horror novel was that of Paula Jean Weldon. <clears throat> what Paul- horror novel? Are you going to get to that? I will get to that. Okay. Paula Jean Weldon was a college student studying at Bennington College in 1946. She was multi-talented and was interested in things ranging from hiking to playing the guitar. During her time before the disappearance, Paula was going through a depressive episode that her friends took note of. She was sadder than usual and did not go to Thanksgiving dinner back home either. So when she decided to tell her roommate about the hike she was going on, going to go on December 1st, 1946, everyone thought that it was Paula's way of rejuvenating herself. Little did they know it would be the last time they ever saw Paula back on campus. Paula Weldon has been dubbed the real-life Little Red Riding Hood because of the way she was dressed before she left for the hike. She was wearing a red parka jacket with fur, jeans, and sneakers. It made little sense for someone to dress this lightly when going for a hike in the winter when snow was imminent. Many speculated that Paula underestimated the change in weather as it was only 50 degrees Fahrenheit when she left. However, soon after, the weather turned harsh, going as low as 10 degrees Fahrenheit. Ooh, that's cold. I know, right? That's it was 28 storm. It was twenty eight degrees out this morning. I, that was cold. It was fun cold. It's, it's still cold hours. out there. The extreme weather was the first thing that might have contributed to her disappearance, but as we will see, it is certainly not the only theory put forward. Worries began to grow when Paula did not return back for her classes the subsequent Monday. Paula's family was notified, and the search began. The first area they checked was Everett Cave, as it had been a place that Paula expressed she wanted to hike to. However, when a small team led by a guide reached the cave, Paula was nowhere to be found. In fact, there was zero evidence of any sort that Paula had ever been on that track. After talking to several people in the area, many told investigators that they had contact with Paula or a girl who matched her description before she went missing. Some of her college mates also reportedly gave directions to Paula about the long trail that she wished to go on. It is reported that Paula decided to start the hike any time after 4 p.m. By that time, though, darkness began to descend and the weather was becoming worse. It was a recipe for disaster. After the initial searches yielded no result, yielded no result, Paula's picture was circulated around newspapers. All taxi drivers were informed of the disappearance and the state police of New York and Massachusetts were also notified. However, as there was not a defined area where Paula might have gone, a formal search was still not started. Volunteer searches that involved students from Williams College who were familiar with Paula's hike path went on searches themselves. Once again, though, there were no signs of Paula at all. Soon enough, the police started getting more involved in the investigation. 
At one point, over 500 people were searching the area for Paula. Even aircraft were used to direct investigators to areas that were not yet searched. Sadly, though, many speculated that the investigation was poorly managed and was extremely inefficient. Even the college president claimed that there was foul play involved and Paula's body was being concealed. However, the investigator report report talked about how the police went above and beyond to find any clue leading to Paula. They even dug up the ground in an extensive area in hopes of finding any remains of her. But it was to no avail. Paula Weldon had disappeared into thin air. Initially, the theory that comes to mind is that Paula could not continue on her trail due to the harsh weather and was lost in the thick and dense woods, ultimately freezing to death. While this theory is very plausible, the utter lack of any evidence at all in the vast area that was searched makes it shaky. An animal attack was deemed nearly impossible as well as there were no signs of torn clothing, a missing shoe, or a limb. No blood was found in the area searched as well. In fact, searches that were conducted even after the snow had melted yielded no results. As time went on and people found no answers to where Paula went, wild theories about alien abduction became increasingly popular. This was backed up by dozens of UFO sightings in the area where Paula went missing, leading many to believe that there was a different type of natural at play, the supernatural. To this day, the disappearance of Paula Jean Walden remains a mystery. The utter lack of any evidence is the main reason why many consider this case to be so baffling. That, coupled with the sensationalized supernatural theories that inspired the novel Hang's Salmon, Hang, S-A-M-A-N, S-A-M-A-N, yes, Hang, S-A-M-A-N, as one word. Hang Salmon? That's what I said. That's how I'm reading it. Hang Salmon has led people to be fascinated by this case to this day. Interesting. So, it could only be two things. It either has to be aliens or freaking Yeti got her. Yeah, because there's Abominable snowman got her. Just ate her whole. Yeah, clothes and all. I mean... I haven't heard you say one thing about there being reports of killers or murderers or anything or kidnappers in the area. Everybody's reporting UFOs. No, they did report serial killers in the area. Oh, I did, I missed that part. It was at the very beginning. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yep. I was so, more intrigued by the UFOs, though. It's like... But, like, where is she? Where could she possibly That be? always baffles me when, like, somebody goes missing and they never find you, like... I mean, I guess it's very likely she just, like, picked up and moved to another place where nobody knows her and nobody, you know, changed her name, maybe to get away from her life that she was depressed about. But that's why it's a mystery, because nobody knows. Nobody has heard from her. Isn't that kind of, what's the word, redundant, unsolved mystery? If it was a miss, if it was solved, would it still be <laughs> yeah, a it's true. Like I don't, I've never understood that. Okay. <laughs> um, number two is Tara Calico. On the morning of September twentieth, nineteen eighty-eight, nineteen-year-old Tara Calico left her home in Belen, New Mexico, to embark on a thirty-six-mile bike ride. That's a long bike ride. <laughs> I don't even want to drive thirty-six miles along New Mexico State Road 47. The events of that morning weren't unusual. According to Tara's mother, Patty Dole, her daughter biked this route almost daily. What? (laughs) I don't even want to do it once in my life. She does that shit every day? Every day, day, 36 miles. Like, 
How? Up and back or one way? I I don't know. Because then that's 72 miles a day. Yeah, I don't know. I don't I have time for that. On a bicycle. Oh. Before leaving around 9.30 a.m., Tara asked her mom to come get her if she wasn't home by noon because she had plans with her boyfriend. Patty agreed and unknowingly said goodbye to her daughter for the last time. When she didn't return by 12 p.m., Patty set out to find her. After driving back and forth twice, there was no sign of Tara along her normal route. As panic set in, Patty called the Valencia County Sheriff's Department to report her daughter missing. For weeks, investigators searched the area. Local and state police, as well as hundreds of volunteers, combed the area on foot, horseback, four-wheelers, and planes. The only evidence they found were pieces of Tara's broken Sony Walkman and bike tracks. Her stepfather, John Dole, recalls that the track marks looked more like skids, perhaps a sign of a struggle. Although no one witnessed an abduction, seven people later reported that they saw Tara riding back toward her home at roughly 11.45 a.m. She was said to have her headphones on and multiple witnesses recalled an older model pickup trailing behind her. It's believed that the truck was pulling a shell camper. In the first nine months since Tara disappeared, this was the only information investigators obtained until June 1989 when a strange development swept the nation. A woman in Port Port St. Joe, Florida, spotted a gruesome Polaroid photo in the parking lot of a convenience store. The picture showed a young woman and a boy bound in the back of a van with duct tape covering their mouths. The police were immediately contacted and the woman told them that a windowless Toyota cargo van was parked there when she entered the store. She described the van's driver as a man with a mustache who appeared to be in his 30s. Officers set up roadblocks, but the vehicle was never found. Polaroid officials confirmed that the picture had to be taken after May 1989 because the film, the type of film used was just had just recently been made available. The picture was shown on A Current Affair. Do you remember that show? A Current Affair? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. The following month, friends watching the show contacted the Doles, noticing similarities between Tara and the girl in the photograph. Relatives of Michael Henley, a nine-year-old boy who went missing in New Mexico in May of 1988, also saw the episode and thought the boy resembled Michael. The Doles and Henleys met with investigators to examine the picture. Patty Dole and Henley's mother both asserted that the picture was of their children. Tara had a scar on her leg that was identical to the woman's. Patty also pointed out a visible copy of My Sweet Audrina by V.C. Andrews in the Polaroid, which was Tara's favorite book. The Doles had the photo analyzed by the Scotland Yard, who determined it was Tara. But the Valencia County District Attorney sent it to the Los, Al- Los Alamos National Laboratory, who concluded it wasn't Tara. FBI analysis came back inconclusive. Michael Henley's remains were eventually found in the Zuni Mountains in 1990, roughly seven miles from the campsite where he had disappeared two years earlier. This discovery cast immediate doubt that he was the boy in the photograph. Foul play was later ruled out, and it's presumed that Michael died of hypothermia. For nearly two decades, the unsolved case of Tara Calico went cold. But in the years since 2008, several odd circumstances have thrust her story back into the spotlight. Here's the most recent developments. So in 2008, Renee Rivera, a Valencia County Sheriff who joined the department the year after Tara went missing, claimed to know what happened in an article for the Valencia County News Bulletin. He says he learned that two men, possibly teenagers who knew Tara, 
were driving behind her and accidentally hit the bike. He thinks they panicked, drove off with Tara, and killed her. He alleges that two other men were involved after the murder and have knowledge on the location of Tara's body. We do have to put a case. We do have a case put together, but we want to make sure that this case is a concrete case to where we'll be able to effectively do our jobs. We're just waiting to get a little more evidence. Her bicycle, her clothing, or Tara herself. Rivera is quoted as saying in the article. Patty Dole died in 2006. John Dole learned of Rivera's statements through the media and ridiculed the announcement, questioning why the sheriff would comment without enough evidence to make an arrest. As of now, no arrests have been made and Rivera has not publicly named any suspects. But according to an article on Investigation Discovery website, Rivera still maintains this theory, going as far as to say that the boys' families could have been involved in the cover-up. In 2009, Port St. Joe Police Chief David Barnes received a photograph of a young boy with black marker drawn, drawn over his mouth, made to look like the 1989 photo. Barnes was mailed a second letter containing an original image of the boy. On the day that Barnes' second letter was postmarked, the Star newspaper in Port St. Joe received the same image of the boy with marker over his mouth. As the Star was turning their letter over to police, the Gulf County Sheriff's Department was dealing with another odd coincidence. That day, a psychic called and reported having visions of the case. The woman claimed Tara was buried in California and described a blue Oldsmobile. Authorities dismissed her account, but noted the peculiar, peculiar timing. Henry Brown, a man on his deathbed, wanted to make a confession to the police. <clears throat> he stated that he was in the basement of Lawrence Romero Jr. shortly after Tara's disappearance. He saw what he thought was a woman's body wrapped in blue tarp and buried in a makeshift grave. Dave Silva and another man with red hair started talking about Tara and said that the body was hers. They spoke about how they knew where she rode, so they, along with Leroy Chavez, went up and hit Tara with the car. They put her in the back of the car and drove to a grave pit and raped her. Romero stabbed Tara to death while the others, other three men held her down when she had threatened to go to the police. They said that they originally hid her body in a bush nearby, but as the searches for Tara grew, they moved her to the basement. Henry said that the men had threatened to kill him if he ever said anything and that Romero's father was the sheriff at the time and allegedly helped to cover up the crime. Romero wrote a letter confessing to Tara's murder and his father apparently destroyed it. Another witness came forward with the same story. Unfortunately, all the men alleged to be involved were deceased by that time and Tara has never been found. In 2019... October of 2019, the FBI announced a reward of up to $20,000 for anyone who had information that would lead to the location of Tara or the arrest of those responsible for her disappearance. The FBI released age progression photos showing what Tara would currently look like. It's worth noting that two additional Polaroids have been associated with the case. One was found near a construction site in Montecito, California. This, the film was made after June 1989. The other was taken on film, available after February 1990. The first photo is quite blurry, but Patty Dole believed it could be her daughter because the girl appears to have a cowlick and amblyopia in one eye. 
I don't know don't what that know means. What that is. <laughs> as did Tara. The second is widely regarded as a gag photo. Had she not been tragically taken so soon, Tara would have celebrated her 53rd birthday on February 28th next year, 2022. Her family maintained hope that she would someday be found alive, but John Dole and Tara's brother, Chris, know it's unlikely that she's still out there. In 2018, Chris discussed Patty's heartache with People magazine. Mom really did not want to believe she was dead, period. Patty spent the rest of her life asserting that the girl in the Polaroid was Tara. It was her glimmer of hope that she would someday be reunited with her daughter. This case has been unsolved for over 30 years, but it's anything but cold. Perhaps 2022 is the year that Tara and the Doles finally get justice. That's crazy. Like, I could never imagine just, like, a family, a family or anybody I know that just, like, just went missing, like... I've seen all of the pictures, so I've seen the one of her and the little boy in the back of the van mm. several times. I don't think it looks like her, but I also have a thing where, like, I can look at a picture knowing it's the exact same person, and they can be, like, positioned differently, and they'll look like two totally different oh, yeah. people. So I don't know her. I'm not going to say it's not her. I'm, I'm nobody, but yeah. it doesn't look like her to me. Now, the second picture... The the one where she says she has the calic, it's it's hard to see. But, I mean, her mom thought it was her, so her mom, of all people, should know. Now, the third picture is of a girl. It looks like she's on, like, a train or a bus sitting next to a man, and she's got, like, bandages wrapped around her, like like she's bound up, but they're, like, loose. So that's why they said that one looked like a gag photo. It's a pretty shitty gag. Yeah, right. Personally. That's freaking nuts, man. Yep. Number three is about Jeanette De Palma. Jeanette De Palma had only just turned 16 years old when she vanished. She was raised in a happy Italian... Italian? Italian? Italian household among her siblings and her parents, Salvatore and Florence. The De Palma family was very Italian. Yeah, right. (laughs) The De Palma family was a church-going family, and Jeanette was known to be a devout Christian and true to her faith. Her reputation in the community was excellent. On August seventh, nineteen seventy-two, Jeanette De Palma informed her mother that she was going to hitchhike to catch the train to a friend's house. While hitchhiking is a highly frowned-upon practice today due to its inherent dangers, (laughs) yeah, it was a common practice in the seventies. Jeanette also let her mother know that after visiting her friend, she had planned to go to work that afternoon. Later, <coughs> sorry, later it was discovered that Jeanette De Palma had never made it to her friend's house. After Jeanette had still still had not arrived home later in the night, her parents decided to report her as missing to the police. It would be another six weeks before Jeanette De Palma was found. On September 19th, 1972, a man received a terrible surprise when his dog brought him the decaying right forearm of a human body. Bad dog. Yeah, <laughs> Very dog. bad dog. Yes, take that back where you found <laughs> it and leave it. Yikes. From there, it didn't take long for authorities to find where the remains had originated. The body of Jeanette De Palma was found only a short distance from the apartment complex where the dog and his owner resided. In the Haudelay Quarry near the Wachong Reservation. The rock her body rested on is known locally as the Devil's Teeth. The investigation into Jeanette De Palma's death was unique. Several witnesses at the scene of the crime claimed that the body of Jeanette was found surrounded by occult objects 
and that her remains were lying atop a pentagram. However, not all police officers on the scene agreed with that claim. Donald Schwett was one of... Schwetty balls. Schwett. <laughs> Schwett. 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 Like D-D-D-T? D-D-T, yeah. Schwett. Yep, try that. Mm-hmm. Sure. Was one of the first officers, he was one of the first officers on the scene. He claimed that there was nothing unusual about the murder scene. He surmised that it wasn't a murder at all and that Jeanette had just overdosed on drugs and that her friends had left her there. However, this theory did not fit Jeanette's personality or way of life. An anonymous source within the police department came forward and stated that the rumors of occult activity found at the crime scene were indeed true. The remains of Jeanette De Palma's body had been so degraded that it required dental records to make a positive identification. Crazy. Furthermore, due to the level of decomposition, no cause of death was ever determined. However, since there were no obvious signs of trauma, the coroner speculated that Jeanette's cause of death may have been due to strangulation. There was also an unusual finding in Jeanette's remains. Jeanette's body contained high high amounts of lead more than it should. The coroner had no explanation for the finding. In 1973, the FBI became involved in Jeanette De Palma's case. The FBI collected Jeanette's clothing in order to analyze them. The FBI was unable to find any foreign hairs among the clothing. While hair was not found, the FBI did find stains on Jeanette's blouse, underwear, bra, and pants. Unfortunately, the samples were too degraded to determine conclusively whether or not the stains were blood or semen samples. Although another important finding that the FBI was able to conclude was that drugs and poison did not appear to be related to Jeanette's death. People in the neighborhood have been hearing rumors for several several years of occult activity in the woods, so it came as no surprise that it may have played a role in Jeanette De Palma's death. Nonetheless, <laughs> nonetheless, <laughs> nonetheless, it certainly didn't put their minds at ease. There had been recent newspaper reports leading up to Jeanette's murder of animal sacrifices taking place in the same general area that Jeanette's body was found. However, no one expected that the sacrifices would be upgraded to murder, which I don't know how you don't think that. Oh, yeah. Anybody who's going to sacrifice animals and kill animals... You're eventually going to kill a person. It always leads to murder. Pretty much. Human murder. All these serial killers, they... I used to kill squirrels and do that. And, Neighborhood yep. cats and dogs. Yep. Mm-hmm. Whether or not Jeanette De Palma's murder is related to occult activity is still unknown, but that didn't stop the townspeople from starting to start believing a local cult known as the Witches was responsible for Jeanette's death. Although there was no evidence to support that belief. There have been questions and mysteries surrounding the Jeanette De Palma case since the beginning. It started with the contradictions on whether or not occult activity was involved in Jeanette's death. The truth of the matter has yet to be determined. Then there are the missing case files and what truly happened to them. When reporters and private investigators started requesting to look into Jeanette De Palma's case file in recent years, they were met with a variety of answers. On some occasions, they were told that the case was still active and that the files were not available to the public. A fair enough answer under the circumstances. However, others were told that the files went missing during Hurricane Floyd in 1999. But the story doesn't end there. An anonymous investigator with the homicide unit claimed that the files on the Jeanette De Palma case had been missing since at least 1984. What? 
So they're just coming up with different excuses as to why nobody can get their hands on them files. Well, it's hard. Something. That's, something's fishy. That's that's something's shady. Really, that's really shady fishy as fuck. and shady. Sus. While it's hard to say for sure, there are many who believe that there may be a cover-up involving the Jeanette Zapama case. Ed Salzano is a private investigator that got involved in the case at the request of John Bancy, the nephew of Jeanette. He was on his deathbed and was hoping to get some answers as to what happened to his aunt before he passed away. Ed Salzano reportedly stands firm in his belief that there are those within the Springfield community that know what happened to Jeanette De Palma, but are just too afraid to come forward. Salzano wants Jeanette's case to be reopened and reexamined. Salzano feels that Jeanette no longer has a voice and no one else to stand up for her. With that in mind, Ed Salzano filed, filed a lawsuit in order to compel the Union County Prosecutor's Office to test the clothing of Jeanette De Palma for DNA analysis, which was still available. Unfortunately, Superior Court Judge Karen Cassidy ruled against Salzano and dismissed the case. What? Wow. Judge Cassidy based her decision on the fact that she felt that Salzano had no standing to bring the lawsuit against the county as he personally did not have a relationship with Jeanette her estate, or anyone who has a stake in the outcome of the case. Yes, he did. Her nephew requested that he yes. get the answers. Yes. So that's fucked up, and that is shady as shit. Mm-hmm. Sadly, John Bancy, Jeanette's nephew, passed away before the lawsuit went to court, and he never received the answers he so desperately hoped for regarding his aunt's murder. The De Palma family has remained mostly quiet on their daughter's murder. They have drawn little attention to themselves. Nonetheless, they have never gotten the answers they deserve. The family doesn't know who killed their daughter. Those answers are still out there waiting for them. That's crazy. So what do you think? What do you think happened? I don't know what happened. Except somebody's covering something up. Why? Why are they covering shit up? Because there's there's a reason they say that the files are missing. Mm Mm-hmm. And they're giving different answers for that. There's a reason why this judge bitch denied his request for the testing. There's some something's being covered up. So somebody, somebody important did something. That's how what I think, but I don't know who or why. That's crazy. Okay, this next one baffles me. This is about Josh Maddox. Okay. He was born March 9th, 1990, and lived in Woodland Park, a town of around 8,000 people in the Pike National Forest, Teller County, Colorado. His parents were divorced, and Josh lived with his father, Mike, and two sisters, Kate and Ruth. He was long-haired, six feet tall, blonde-haired, and weighed around 150 pounds. Just keep that in mind. Like, mm-hmm. his his stats. Keep Seems in mind. 150 pounds and... Six feet tall. Okay. Oh, he was like tall and skinny. Yep. He had, um, yeah, he had a carefree attitude to life, loved music, spending much of his free time writing music or playing the guitar. At school, he was a bright student and was seemingly well-liked. Two years before Josh's disappearance on June 1st, 2006, a week before his high school graduation, his older brother, Zachary, 18, committed suicide after suffering from severe depression. Mike Maddox said, I buried his older brother two years before, and it was so difficult on Josh. When his brother died, it pushed him over the edge. 
It was a big shock for the family and a big shock for Josh. He thought highly of his older brother. Despite this, Josh had been doing well and was happy in the period around 2008. On May 8, 2008, he left the house telling his sister Kate that he was going out for a walk. He often went hiking alone, so when his sister saw him at the house before he left, she thought little of it. But when he failed to return later that evening, the family became worried. On May 13th, five days after he disappeared, his father, Mike, called the police to report Josh missing. Mike said, I got up one morning and Josh was there, then he just never came home. The next day, he still didn't come home. I called his friends. Nobody had seen him. Nobody knows where he is. The authorities, friends, and family scoured the neighborhood and nearby Parkland area where Josh may have decided to go walking. After months of searching, nothing had been uncovered and hopes faded. Josh's sister, Kate, hoped that he had simply left town to go and play music or start a different life. She wrote of her brother's disappearance. Since Josh was 18, it had been reasonable to assume he may have decided to leave town to start a new life. As one of his two older sisters, I have always chosen to believe that this was the case. I have expected Josh to return home to my father's house at any time with a wife and small children so that they can meet their grandparents and two aunts. Josh has always been known for his musical and literary talent, so maybe we could we would find him playing music with a band on tour or catch him writing successful, successful novels under a pen name so that he could keep his preferred lifestyle of solitude in the woods. The police had no reason to suspect any foul play and so listed him as a missing person. In 2015, Chuck Murphy, 80, a builder from Colorado Springs, was demolishing his old wood cabin on Meadow Lark Lane, which was in a large area of land surrounded by tall pines. Chuck had originally purchased the cabin in the 1950s. It had formerly been the homestead of Thunderhead Ranch on Rampart Range Road on Woodland Park's north side. The cabin hadn't been used for a decade and had fallen into a state of disrepair. Chuck had made the decision to demolish the cabin to make way for property development in August 2015. And in August 2015, demolition work started. Wow. Chuck's brother had lived in the cabin until 2005, but since moving out, it had become a storage facility and it had rarely been visited. Animals had been a problem, and there was a noticeable stench when Chuck came to the cabin on August 7th. As the workers dismantled the chimney, one of the two in the cabin, using an excavator, and reached the interior, Chuck made the horrific discovery of the body of a young man cramped into a fetal position with his legs above his head. He called the police, who arrived with the county coroner, who later, with the help of dental records, positively identified the body to be that of the missing man, Josh Maddox. That's crazy. The Maddox family was shocked by the news of the discovery of Josh's body. His sister Kate said, The situation doesn't make any sense at all. We were really expecting him to be anywhere else in the world when he and he was actually very close. The only thing we can figure is he was being an 18-year-old kid, checking out a cabin. It had already been abandoned for a long time, and a horrible accident happened. The cabin was only two blocks from the Maddox family home, yet the searches for Josh had overlooked the building. That's crazy. Two blocks. There had been there had not been any sign of life, and there was no reason to check a chimney there. Chuck Murphy, the cabin o- cabin owner himself, had rarely visited. However, on the occasions that he had to check in, he himself had not noticed anything unusual about the property. Which I'm going to call bullshit on, and I'll tell you why in a minute. 
Since the cabin itself stood centrally in a large plot of land surrounded by tall pines around 50 feet from the road, police suggested that with no adjacent homes, if Josh had cried for help, no one would have been able to hear him regardless. The Teller County Coroner, Al Bourne, did an autopsy and found no evidence of any drugs in Josh's remains. He said there, the hard tissue showed no signs of trauma. There were no broken bones, no knife marks. There were no bullet holes. There are so far no answers to a number of things. It is very confusing. It was not instant death. How he died is only a matter of speculation, but we know he did not starve to death because that takes many weeks. So then you go down the chain and you have dehydration, which can take just a few days, and the other thing would be hypothermia, which could take a day or two. We have no evidence to say which one came first. On September 28, 2015, Bourne made a ruling of accidental death. He speculated that Josh had climbed into the chimney and became stuck in the brickwork. Bourne stated that Josh's position in the chimney appeared to have been a voluntary act in order to gain access. He concluded the most likely cause was hypothermia, as the temperature around the time of his disappearance between May 8th and 10th, 2008, had dropped to the high 20s. Many locals had issues with the coroner's report, including the family. Chuck questioned the coroner's conclusion of accidental death as the chimney had been built 20 years before and during its construction, it had been fitted with a thick wire mesh hung from the steel hooks used to keep animals and debris from becoming lodged inside the chimney or entering the cabin itself. Murphy said it was a heavy wire grate, a wire mesh. I installed it across the chimney about one row of bricks from the top. We didn't want trouble with raccoons and getting and things getting into the chimney. Bourne was of the opinion that the grate could have been rusted or corroded and further stated, nobody saw the metal mesh. We didn't see it in any of our photos. It may have disappeared. Murphy responded that during the demolition, all metal work had been collected and taken for scrap, which would explain why the mesh was not clearly identified by the coroner as it wasn't anywhere near the chimney. They were just gathering up all the steel, angle iron, and things as part of the demolition, Murphy said. They had no idea the mesh had any significance. Conceding to Murphy, Bourne reopened the case three days after his initial conclusion. It was not only the rebar that caused doubt about the original autopsy. For example, a large wooden breakfast bar that had been torn from a wall in the kitchen and dragged over to block the chimney from inside the cabin raised further suspicion. If the breakfast bar had been torn from the wall, then who had done it and why? Josh's body had also been found in a fetal position with his legs above his head and disjointed from his torso. In order to have gotten into such a position, he would have had to enter the chimney head first. Who would do that? If you want to break into a house or like whatever reason you want to get into that house and you go through the chimney, who would go head first? Yeah, well, but then like if you're going to... If you're gonna kill somebody like this guy that owned the property, oh, I'm not saying he killed him. I'm just saying I have a problem with the one thing he said about him doing check-ins and not noticing anything. I'll get to it. But I just don't. Who the fuck would enter a chimney head first? Yeah, like I that's mean, a long way down. Like, how do you not fall and crack your skull open? I don't know. I've never done it. It's weird. Okay. Um, this was a fairly unusual position and Bourne had earlier commented that he thought it would have taken two people to position him in such a fashion. What was even stranger was that when Josh's body had been found, he was only wearing a thin thermal shirt and his clothes had actually been found inside the cabin folded up next to the fireplace. 
That's why I'm calling bullshit on his check-ins. Because if you went and checked the property, if you checked inside, how would you not have seen this dude's clothes next to the fireplace? Yeah, true. Born said of this evidence, this one really taxed our brains. We found his clothing just outside the firebox. He only had on a thermal t-shirt. We don't know why he took his clothes off, took his shoes off, took his, and his socks off, and why he went outside, climbed on the roof, and went down the chimney. It was not linear thinking. The revised autopsy report said that the cause of death was an accidental death, murder, or undetermined causes. You know, it's just cover it all. Yeah, right. Everything's covered. Bourne said, we've come up with the most plausible explanation, and it will remain an accident. He did come down the chimney. That's our conclusion. Murphy said, there's no way the guy, that guy crawled inside that chimney with that steel webbing. He didn't come down the chimney, and he remained convinced that Je Josh's death had been no accident. Adding, he was only wearing his thermal shirt. No pants, no shoes or socks. Murphy said, it was ridiculous to think the teen stripped down to just his shirt, climbed up on the roof, and then the chimney, and slid down knowing he'd be trapped. The police received several anonymous tip-offs suggesting leads and naming suspects that had bragged of killing Josh. One such suspect was now incarcerated in a Texas jail and had served time previously in Seattle and Portland prisons with a long history of violent crime. One tip-off had informed the police that this man had been seen with Josh. When speaking of the man, Al Bourne said, they can't give me times and specifics and we can't generate stuff that goes back seven years. Bourne also doubted that the man would have been able to have put Josh in the chimney alone. In 2015, a post on Reddit gave a name to the suspect just mentioned. The post said, now this is, everything I'm about to read is, a, is the post from Reddit. Okay. I went to high school with this skinny, dorky hippie named Andy who played guitar in a band. I was never good friends with him or anything, but a year or so after I graduated, one of my good friends, Josh, started hanging out with him, and then went missing. Turns out that in addition to becoming a lot scarier looking, Andy was indeed headed down to New Mexico, where he found himself shooting the shit with the caretaker of a disabled guy and got invited over to their apartment. Caretaker gets in the shower, and when he comes back out, the disabled guy is stabbed to death and Andy's gone. When Andy got arrested, he also claimed to have killed a woman in Taos <coughs> and stuffed her body in a barrel. The cops had indeed find, found a woman stuffed in a barrel in Taos, but already had somebody in custody for it and decided to stick with that guy instead. Because, you know, why not? Yeah, well, that's crazy. Years later, I found out that the caretaker had died in a bar fight, and without him, the cops didn't have much in the way of evidence somehow. So that case against Andy was dropped, too. Several of us went to the cops saying, yo, Josh, who went missing, was last seen with Andy, who's a murderer. Maybe you should check that out. Despite a fair amount of pestering, nothing ever really came of it. And by nothing, I mean that the police mostly didn't even return our calls and once accidentally canceled the bulletin on Josh because he's alive and well and living in the next town over. He wasn't. He was actually in the chimney of an abandoned cabin like two blocks from his parents' house. The coroner said the body had been there for about seven years and ruled the death accidental, concluding that Josh had probably climbed down the chimney in an attempt to break into the house and gotten stuck which, given the age of the corpse, doesn't seem overly ridiculous. Except for the fact that in addition to Josh having last been seen with Andy immediately before his stabbing spree, people called in to report having heard rumors that Andy was bragging about having put Josh in a hole. 
Somebody had ripped a heavy bar off the wall in the kitchen and propped it against the fireplace. Or the fact that Josh's stuff was already inside the cabin, meaning A, he'd already broken in and would have would have had to lock himself out to have to go for the chimney. And B, he might have noticed that either the flu or the big bar would have prevented him from getting in through the fireplace. Or the fact that he was when he was found, Josh's knees were above his head, which sounds to me like he would have had to go in head first. Disclaimer, not an expert at fucking all. Or maybe the fact that Josh was barefoot and naked from the waist down. This is just my opinion, but I don't care who you are. Don't try to climb headfirst into a chimney via a hole rusted through a metal grate with your dick hanging out. As far as I can tell, nobody even bothered to call Andy to ask if he knew anything. By the way, from what I hear, Andy's still out and about doing his thing when he's not in the mental hospital. All I'm saying is, I wish they had done some police shit. Open an investigation, try to track down some leads, interview some of the folks who've been calling in tips for the last seven years. Maybe check for some semen or something. I don't know. Don't just say accidental, dust off your hands, and call it a day. That was the Reddit post. Yeah, crazy. Andy's full name was Andrew Richard Newman. He was arrested on suspicion of a fatal stabbing in New Mexico and is currently serving time. Chuck Murphy, the owner of the cabin, said, It's a real conundrum. A tragic, terrible story. All I know is he did not go down that chimney. He got in that fireplace and went up. But why? I think it will remain a mystery. One of those sad stories. And somebody killed him and shoved him up in the chimney exactly. or something. Um, yep, exactly. But who? But then that's weird that you would shove him in there upside down. I don't know. Maybe you just like, I don't know. Or maybe push, maybe throw him down. From the roof, but then why would you? How would you carry a dead body onto the roof? Maybe, maybe they were on the roof. Maybe lowered a roof down, tied them up somehow, pulled them up the chimney, and then untied them and dropped them down. I don't fucking. He know. lowered the roof down. No, lowered the no, like he lowered a rope down the chimney. Oh, you did say lowered the roof down. Whatever. We're going lowered to the rope back. down the chimney. Okay. But that's weird. I don't know, man. It is a real conundrum. Freaking, I, I don't know, man. Somebody killed him. That's all I know. Somebody somebody had to kill him. There's no way you're going to go into a chimney. Chimney. <laughs> a chimney. <laughs> yeah. No way you're going to go into a chimney upside down. Like, it's whatever. Go ahead. Next. This, next is the Springfield Three. Sounds interesting. On June 6, 1992, Susie Streeter and Stacy McCall graduated from Kickapoo High School. In Kickapoo. It Kick- sounds like you're kicking a piece of shit. Kickapoo High School in Springfield, Missouri. They went out for a night of celebrations. The plan was to stop by several house parties and spend the night at their friend Janelle Kirby's home. But when they finally arrived at Janelle's house around 2 a.m., the house was too overcrowded. And then without knowing, they altered their fates. They decided to go back to Susie's house and sleep there. Nobody saw them ever again. On the following morning, June 7th, Janelle Kirby and her boyfriend waited for Susie and Stacy. They had all planned to go together to a water park. When the girls didn't show up at Janelle's house, she and her boyfriend went to pick them up. They arrived at Susie's house at around 8 a.m. Three ve- vehicles were parked outside, belonging to Susie, Stacy, and Susie's mother, Cheryl. The glass lamp on the porch was broken and the door was unlocked. Janelle and her boyfriend went inside. The purses of all three women were lined up on the living room floor at the foot of the steps leading into Susie's bedroom. The dog, a Yorkshire Terrier called Cinnamon, was locked in the bathroom. But Cheryl, Susie, and Stacy were nowhere to be seen. While they were in the house, the phone rang. Janelle answered. A 
A strange male voice on the other end started making sexual innuendos. She hung up. Soon the phone rang again. The same voice, Janelle hung up again. Her boyfriend, meanwhile, innocently cleaned up the broken glass on the porch. They left. Several hours later, Stacy's mother, Janice, who had been getting increasingly worried, went to the house herself. She hadn't been able to reach Stacy by phone and knew she had decided to spend the night at Susie's. She went inside and also noticed all three purses on the living room floor. She looked around in the other rooms. She recognized her daughter's clothes neatly folded on her sandals by Susie's waterbed. She also noticed that Cheryl and Susie, both chain smokers, had left their cigarettes in the house. Janice knew something was wrong. She hey, you'll leave all your cigarettes in the hell house. Hell no. She called the police in a panic. When she hung up, she noticed a light blinking on the answering machine. Someone had left a message. She played it and later described it as strange. She couldn't remember more, and the answering machine had automatically erased the message after it was played once. The police were baffled by the case. There was no sign of forced entry in the house. The two girls had by all appearances gotten ready for bed. There were damp washcloths in the bathroom. They had removed their makeup. There was jewelry left on the sink. In the purses left behind, police found wallets, IDs, car keys, and money. The dog was in the house. And that was our dog gagging on the floor. (laughs) Nothing was missing from the house except the three women. The television was turned on. Cheryl's bed appeared to have been slept in. Her eyeglasses were on the nightstand next to a turned over book. The blinds in Susie's room were pulled apart as if someone was looking outside. An untouched graduation cake was sitting in the fridge. The officers started collecting evidence. Soon, it became clear that they had begun their investigation too late. By that point, over 16 hours after the disappearance. Worried friends and family had been coming to the house, somewhere between 10 and 20 people, probably tainting the crime scene. Also, the message on the answer machine had been lost, and the broken glass from the porch lamp, the single possible sign of forced entry, had been swept up and thrown in the trash. The police recovered all of the evidence they could, but we don't know whether anything crucial had vanished in the meantime. They started interviewing people. The neighbors hadn't heard anything during the night. The last person to hear from Cheryl was a friend. Cheryl had called her on the night of her disappearance at 11.15 p.m. and told her how she was painting a chest of drawers. She gave no indication that anything was wrong. From that point, every trail picked up by the police went cold. Their first suspect was Susie's ex-boyfriend, He had been arrested for robbing graves, and Susie was allegedly going to testify against him. However, the police quickly ruled him out as a suspect. They also looked into Bart Streeter, Cheryl's son and Susie's brother. He was also ruled out. They apparently investigated the strange phone calls. The only official statement is that the two prank calls that Janelle answered were unrelated to the strange message that was later inadvertently erased by Janice, which I find very hard to believe. But no further information about these calls has been released. Over the years, many people have claimed to have leads on the case. In 1993, a man called Stephen Eugene Garrison was arrested on a weapon charge and claimed to know where the three women are buried as part of his plea bargain. He said a friend had drunkenly admitted to murdering them. Garrison supposedly had details about the case that were not released to the public. He led the police to a farm, but no bodies were found. Um, Robert Fox, convicted of for kidnapping and robbery in Texas and a suspect in a Florida murder, claimed in 1997 to know what happened to the three women. 
He was in Springfield during the time of their disappearance, but had an alibi when questioned by the police. Sure. He was interviewed and brought to a grand jury. They did not indict him. He still maintained to know what happened, but said he'd reveal everything only after his mother dies. What? I don't know. In 2007, a web sleuth by the name of Ken claimed to have had a psychic encounter with the spirit of Stacy. She had told him the bodies were buried under the parking garage of the Cox South Hospital, only 10 minutes away from Cheryl and Susie's house. The location was scanned with a ground-penetrating radar. The mechanical engineer who performed the scanning said that the, he identified three anomalies consistent with a gravesite. Two were parallel and one was positioned perpendicular. However, authorities refused to dig up the site based on the unconvincing evidence and the fact that the parking garage was built one year after the Springfield 3 disappeared. So? Yeah, right? They could still be there. No shit. Based on the extremely scarce physical evidence, any theory on what happened can only be pure speculation. Yep. Yeah, just because it was built a year after they went disappearing, fucking... You're after that missing. I mean, the yeah. fuck? Dig it up. All right. Well, we did have six tonight, but I'm going to save. I think the last one, I'm going to do a separate episode. Wow. You left him with a cliffhanger. I sure did. Damn. Yep. I think it's going to be its own because it's a lot. I mean, I did a very condensed version as my, for my notes, but I want to explore it fully. Fully so. explore. We're going to leave that one for another explore day. to the max. Yep. Well, good. So that was five more unsolved mysteries. Yep, sure did. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so that's it. Um, as always, we hope you enjoyed We sure the episode. do. If you guys liked the episode or didn't like the episode or know of any unsolved mysteries. Or have any information um in the finding any of these people that haven't been found or know who killed these people let let your local authorities know yes. not us because yes. we're let just your local podcasters. authorities know and then let us know that you let the local yes, authorities but know. definitely let them know first cause, yes yes that makes sense good idea yep okay well we hope you enjoyed and we will see you next time bye bye